0: Lynn Moffitt, I welcome you to Exit Strategy, and I thank you so much for joining this podcast. I've really, really been looking forward to this conversation. So, a quick introduction to our listeners. Harry Lynn is the co-author of truly one of the most important books that I've been able to share with families. It's called A Silent Sorrow. It's a seminal work dealing with the very under-discussed reality and trauma of pregnancy loss. She also wrote Johnson & Johnson's Guide to Pregnancy and Early Parenthood and is currently writing a novel about abortion and grief. Perry Lynn, you and I met many, many years ago when we collaborated on a conference together, and it is so wonderful to sit in conversation with you today to elevate this most challenging and most sacred end-of-life conversation. So welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Stephanie. I always am happy to talk about pregnancy loss. I mean, it's a sad topic, but there are ways of dealing with it that are very helpful to not only the grieving couple, but the extended family and friends.
0: Let's define The term pregnancy loss because I know this can take many forms. So, explain, if you will, the context. The
1: basic context is any pregnancy that ends before full term stillbirth. Pregnancy loss includes full term stillbirth, it includes ectopic pregnancy, which often happens in the very early stages of a pregnancy. So, at any point in which the pregnancy ends, that's considered a loss. I also feel strongly that abortion needs to be included within the subject of pregnancy loss, and there is a chapter about abortion in A Silent Sorrow. Any time a wanted pregnancy ends is considered a loss. And some couples, when they're faced with a life threatening condition with the baby, they sometimes we'll
0: choose abortion. Yes. So before we do a deep dive into that conversation, talk to us a little bit about how you became involved in pregnancy loss. I know that you were a longtime volunteer counselor with the Pregnancy Loss Support Program of the National Council of Jewish Women in New York. So what, brought you into this conversation where you have put so much of your time and energy? It was
1: my own pregnancy losses. My husband and I had lived together for four years and we both really wanted children. Mm -hmm. So we got married and I became pregnant about two weeks after our wedding ceremony. About nine or 10 weeks into that pregnancy, I lost that baby and I was devastated. At the time, I was 36 years old, and I was five years older than my husband, and I started to feel guilty that I couldn't bring him the children he and I both wanted. Mm -hmm. And my obstetrician said, try again. So we tried again. Within a couple of weeks, I was pregnant again, and at about 11 weeks, I lost that baby, too. So I had what's called two consecutive miscarriages. And I said to my obstetrician, I want tests. And she said, no, I want to wait until you've had three consecutive oh my! And I was very upset about that. I was very sad. I talked to my husband about it. And I realized within my heart that I needed to talk to other women who had experienced pregnancy losses. I felt that there would be comfort in that. And I spent three days calling everyone I knew in the medical profession Uh, Nobody had heard about a pregnancy loss support program, but finally I reached a nurse at Mount Sinai Hospital, and she said, gee, I just got this flyer about the pregnancy loss support program. So I called the National Council of Jewish Women New York section, and I said, I'm not Jewish, but I had a pregnancy loss. The woman on the other end of the phone said, we're a non-sectarian program. You are welcome to come. Interestingly enough, husbands, fathers of the babies, or partners were not allowed to come. But the program helped me so much to understand my grief and work through my grief and express it that it really, I think, saved my marriage and enabled me to go on to have two subsequent pregnancies that were picture perfect. And I have two grown children that I love dearly.
0: What? A pioneer you were to really take care of yourself in such a way you knew instinctively what you needed, and that was to be surrounded by those who had experienced what you had experienced.
1: That's right, even if it was just the women. I was so impressed with the program that when I was about eight months pregnant with our son, I trained to become a bereavement counselor with the program work that I did for a long time, 28 years. And it was extremely rewarding work. It enabled me to turn my grief into positive action and to help others. And I advocated very strongly to include the partners. Later, I advocated very strongly to include same-sex couples mm-hmm. because they go through similar grief processes. The Pregnancy Law Support program of the National Council of Jewish Women New York Section has been so responsive and has expanded its programs beautifully, I think, to help everyone who's affected by pregnancy loss.
0: Why do you think it has been so long that this conversation has gone unexamined?
1: I think it's clear in the title that we chose for our book, A Silent Sorrow, People are too quiet about it. They're embarrassed. They feel that they're grieving, but they don't understand it. So they're quiet about it. In the support groups that I facilitated and in the telephone counseling that I accomplished, I heard over and over again the story that when the couple started to talk about their pregnancy loss, other people in the family who had never mentioned their own pregnancy losses opened up about them. Margaret Mead has talked about this, too. She said when you're born into a village that's built around a raging fire for cooking and warmth and you live in huts, everyone understands what sickness, death, childbirth, miscarriage is. I think when birth moved into hospitals, a lot of people became very distant when Birth doesn't go well, and when people experience a loss. I was shocked when I did the original research for the first edition of A Silent Sorrow that doctors are not trained in bereavement. (laughs) Neither are ministers, imams, or rabbis. I called a couple of places that train people for the ministry and the rabbinate and becoming imams. And they said, oh, no, bereavement is just an optional course if they want to work in a hospital, as if nobody in a congregation dies or experiences a pregnancy loss. Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of in-service programs about pregnancy loss in hospitals, and the doctors don't come, but the nurses are there and the social workers are there. And I think the nurses and the social workers have been remarkably welcoming to learning about pregnancy loss and how to handle it. One example from my own experience was my first pregnancy loss. My husband and I went into the hospital. He wasn't supposed to be there. It was in the middle of the night. A nurse came in and she said, you know, if your husband puts his feet up on your bed and I draw the curtain, nobody will know he's here, but you need him here now, during this. Hmm. So I think there's improvement But unfortunately, not enough. People are still having
0: difficulties. Pregnancy loss and its resulting trauma is really a family issue. It affects everyone. And so I want you to talk for a moment about the waves of grief and trauma that touch all the family members. Well, in the counseling
1: sessions and in A Silent Sorrow, we talk about this Ripple effect throughout the family with friends, with colleagues. We have a special chapter on grandparent grief. It can be very profound. One grandmother I interviewed said, I was worried because my daughter knew that I just popped babies out one after the other, and here she was struggling to have a child. And did she resent me for that? Yes, that grief really extends. We also have a chapter about explaining the loss to other children in the family.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: A lot of children are told in advance of the baby coming that there is a baby coming, and when it doesn't come, they can feel bewildered. And it's very important to speak directly to family members about this issue, especially with children, so they understand that it was nothing they thought or said. They might have been jealous of the baby coming. Right. It's like any other trauma. You want them to know that it wasn't their fault. And opening up the conversation is always the most important and direct and effective way to proceed. Talk to your mom about your pregnancy loss and let her speak her truth and find out what she's worried about. I think it's just very important.
0: And on top of that, people don't always know what to say. And people are well-intentioned and they, they want to say the right thing and yet they don't. I think this is probably especially true when it comes to pregnancy loss because it's been hidden for so long. What advice do you have about what to say?
1: In the counseling sessions and in the book, we list the five worst comments you could possibly say to someone mm-hmm. who's had a pregnancy loss. One of them is, it happened for the best. This comes from the fact that sometimes pregnancy losses are caused by a hormonal imbalance or something that's wrong with the baby itself. What you can say in response is, I know you mean to be comforting, but Mm -hmm. I really wanted this baby, and I need to grieve this baby. Don't worry, you can have another baby. Babies are not replaceable. And for a woman who is older and has had several losses, she may not be able to have another baby and she's or at least she's very worried about that. Yes. You didn't really know the baby, so you shouldn't be so sad. But I think with the the modern medicine and all of the information that's imparted in and sonograms and you can find out the gender of the baby. There's a lot riding on it, and there's the dream of having this baby and figuring out whose nose in the family it's going to have and what it's going to become, and you're losing that dream. I know exactly how you feel. I talked to one woman recently who said, a friend of her said, I know what you're going through because my cat died recently. Mm-hmm. Well, no, unless you've had a pregnancy loss, you don't know. And the best thing is to say, well, tell me what it's like and what you're going through. The fifth worst thing is to say, what are you going to do now? Are you going to adopt? Are you going to give up? Right after the loss, no family has worked on <laughs> what they're going to do next. It's important to avoid that.
0: And it really appears that one is totally, especially when it comes to pregnancy loss, in that moment, in that unbearable grief in that space. That's right. And they literally just have to be in that space.
1: Actually, one of the most important things to say is, I don't know what to say. Yeah. And that way you're not offering one of these platitudes and you're giving that person the opportunity, especially if you follow it up with, tell me about what happened. I always began my telephone counseling sessions with tell me what happened, and I would get a stream of information from both the mom I was working with and the dad. They want to talk about it, and the more you let them talk, the better their grief response is going to be because they're releasing the grief and they're analyzing it, they're sharing it, and you don't want to cut that off.
0: You just spoke about the dads, the partners. Yes. So you do, in the book, address the needs of the caregivers. And I love this. You speak about the five C's. I think this is great. Comfort, console, create, care, and call. Just talk about that for a moment.
1: I think comfort is the most important thing to offer for caregivers. The caregivers that are usually there are the doctor, nurse, perhaps the family has asked to speak to a chaplain, remembering that chaplains are not necessarily cued into (laughs) handling this situation properly, but offering, first of all, that comfort. I know how much you wanted this baby, and this baby is important to you. That leads right into consoling comments. Even if you don't know what to say, again, console by asking how the couple is feeling, the parents are feeling. And if they want anything, and they may ask for a chaplain, and then create, that one is really geared towards rituals. I think rituals are very, very important. I worked with a Catholic sister who was a chaplain, and she said, I always ask my parents, what name they've chosen for the baby. I don't say, you have to name this baby, <laughs> but what name have you chosen? And she said, "What whatever they say is appropriate. Chaplain said they called the baby Froggy. So they said, well, we've been calling the baby Froggy. And it just accept whatever the parents feel is appropriate. And sometimes they don't want to use the name that they chose because it honors a loved one or uh, someone who is deceased, but there are suggestions for other names, like taking the initials of both parents and creating a new name for that baby who's died. Care, uh, care doesn't end in the hospital. Be sure to have materials on hand, like a flyer from the Pregnancy loss Support Program. Mm -hmm. And there are nationwide support programs now too. SHARE is one of the big ones, Have that material available, have books or articles available for the couple to read. And calling, I can't tell you how many times the first call a couple received after a pregnancy loss was about their bill. Oh,
0: my goodness.
1: And it's just wrong. Be sure to have someone call to find out how the couple is doing. If they've found some support or if they're seeing a therapist who specializes in pregnancy laws, find out about how they're doing. A follow-up call is really essential and so helpful.
0: You talked about the lack of training for the medical profession, for clergy. I'm very happy to say that we host here at Plaza a day of learning when it comes to funerals and burials for all the seminaries. It's been really wonderful for them and a privilege for us to be able to support them. I'm curious to know over these past 30 plus years since you first went through this time, is there training at all that's going on now?
1: There is more. I've personally done some training. I did it at the Brown University Medical School for students that were interested from their first year onward in going into obstetrics. I mean, it's considered the happy specialty. It's not pediatric oncology, but a lot of them are just not prepared for what happens. I worked with Drexel University's medical school to design programs to train the medical staff. So yes, there is responsiveness but it needs to be emphasized and it needs to be a a continuum. I also feel that we need to reach the obstetrical practices more and have those materials on hand for them and do training for them. I've had several obstetricians who've been very willing to have me come in and talk to the staff, even if it's just for 20 minutes to give them a few of these pointers and to hand them some materials that will be helpful to to give to their patients. So I think there is more training, but it needs to be ongoing. People who go to doctors are not prepared to ask about what happens. And I know in some of the Drexel University materials, one of the obstetricians says, I have a woman who comes in and says she wants to get pregnant. I say, I will be here for you throughout this process, no matter what happens. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes there are problems, but know that I will be here. It's like setting her up for the possibility of not having a picture-perfect pregnancy,
0: right. which I think is very important. So you touched on the importance of ritual. We know in Jewish tradition, the importance of ritual when someone dies, and the framework it really provides to us as we go through our grief. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Is there a specific ritual that you're aware of for this type of loss and death? Some members of the clergy
1: have come up with some prayers and some actual rituals. My father, who was an ordained minister, has one in the second edition of A Silent Sorrow, and I hope there will be a third edition. I remember interviewing an Orthodox rabbi, and he said to me, what should I have done when this father brought me his tiny miscarried baby in a paper cup and said, what should I do? And he said, was I supposed to say, well, if the baby hadn't lived a certain number of days or the pregnancy had not achieved a certain required ritualistic day but i started a little garden right Mm -hmm. next to the shoal and decided that i would offer a simple service it's not an official funeral but it's a simple service and it provides the ritualistic setting and it gives the parents a place to come and honor that baby that they lost. People are recognizing the limitations in religion, that a lot of these laws and rituals and traditions were formed 2,000 or more years ago. They may have been a benefit for people who lost more children than they gave birth to, but that doesn't hold true now. There's a definite trend in the United States of older women wanting to have children. We want to get established in our careers first, and then we start our families. We want to find the right guy be the father of our children, so there's a delay, but then you have more problems. A lot of members of the clergy have been responsive to this. A Protestant chaplain said to me, "The bad side of a grieving mother is not the place to discuss theology. You want to offer something that means something, even if it might not be appropriate according to Catechism or any other religious rules or regulations.
0: And I remember that several years ago, PLAZA partnered with the National Council of Jewish Women, along with the National Center for Jewish Healing and the Jewish Board, to provide information on Jewish approaches to bringing comfort after miscarriage, stillbirth, and neonatal death. And you know uh, Bob Wolf, who is one of PLAZA's board members and a dear friend He believed that the Jewish community could bring a more complete and supportive response to grieving families. And it was UJ Federation of New York who partnered in this effort as well. And we had a conference together, published materials, online materials. And I know you were so involved in that conversation. So,
1: yes, I spoke to several rabbis about sitting shiva. They said, of course, it's not appropriate for a miscarried baby. And I said, well, you don't have to call it Shiva. Just announce to the congregation that this loss has occurred and that people need to go to the home to comfort this family. One of them said, oh, don't call it
0: Shiva. (laughs) And it was like a light bulb. A light bulb. yes, Yes. Yes. And yet some families perhaps want to keep it more as you initially said when we started the conversation on the quiet side yes they are not ready to be public about it what do you think we can do to help families to support them
1: i'm a big believer in private rituals mm. it can be something very simple that the couple does by themselves with a member of the clergy or with family and friends. It doesn't have to be an official memorial service or funeral. It just talk about the baby that they wanted and let people offer whatever comfort they can. They must have favorite music that is comforting to them. Allow them to play that music. Whatever the family feels they need is usually enough, and especially if they want to keep it quiet and don't want to spread the word. But the flip side of that is, I know that Princess Anne's daughter, Sarah Phillips, she wrote an article for one of the British newspapers about her miscarriages, and people criticized her terribly. This is something private, don't talk about this. But that is the wrong approach to take. I think it's important for famous people to speak out about this loss especially if they felt that they didn't receive the kind of support that they should have had because otherwise people aren't going to know what to say or what to offer or how to be a good friend
0: and like with anything it gives us great comfort to know those who are in public spheres go through the same things we go through
1: that's right and i applauded her i applauded Meghan Markle for writing about her miscarriage. I think it's important for people to be open about it so it isn't so hidden and people understand that there is support out there. Don't criticize these women for being so brave to talk about their miscarriages and their pregnancy losses.
0: Carrie Lynn, I thank you immensely for joining me on Exit Strategy to shed a light on a topic that truly just needs more exposure and conversation and resources. All losses are unique, and this one is particularly so. For our listeners, there will be a list of resources in our show notes, including a link to Perry Lynn's book, A Silent Sorrow. Thank you so much for being on Exit Strategy. I really appreciate it.
1: I'm honored to talk about this topic. It means so much to me deeply, and there is so much help out there that I want people to find it and feel that sense of support and community.
0: As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation. I urge you to visit our show notes, and there's an email listed there. So if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you listen to your podcasts each month, we'll renew our conversation with another topic, and I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary, and this is Exit Strategy.